God, as we, as we prepare our hearts for what you have to say to us in your word this morning, God, we pray that we would be able to put the things aside that have caused us anxious thoughts, struggles, uncertainty, confusion, whatever it might be. We pray that we would be able to lay all those things at the foot of the cross, knowing that you care for our concerns and you are at work in the midst of our lives. And so as we do that this morning, God, we pray that you would reveal to us truth from your word. That you would remind us of who you are, that you would remind us of your involvement in our lives and and what our response ought to be to that. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for all that you do for us that we don't even see or acknowledge. You are actively involved, and for that we thank you. God, we thank you for this church family. What a privilege it is to come and to freely worship you, to sing songs, to open scripture, to spend time in prayer. God, we confess that too often the majority of our life is focused on things for ourselves and not things of you. And so would you remind us this morning afresh, would you give us, as as we just saw in the video, would you give us joy because we are in your presence? Would you remind us that you have called us to mission and to purpose? You have called us to honor you with how we live to proclaim Christ and to make him known. And so help us be focused on that in these coming days and weeks ahead. Would you give us opportunities to have conversation with people, to share with them the love of Christ, that we might be able to show them by how we live and how we act that that you are worth all of our worship and all of our praise. And that, in fact, that you alone are worthy of that. God, as we, as we acknowledge our own hurts and our own difficulties in our lives, I, I want to lift those up to you this morning who are facing particularly challenging circumstance. Whether that's the loss of a loved one, diagnosis of illness, family struggles and challenges, or whatever else the situation might be this morning. God, we pray that each of us would turn to you for what we need. That we would trust you, that you will provide for us in your time, in your way. And even if that is different than what we would expect, may we trust you. So God, for those who are grieving this morning, I pray for comfort. That you would show them of your love. For those who are confused about the situation of their life and feel alone, I pray that you would wrap your arms around them and help them to know that you are walking with them in this journey. For those who, like our friends in Lake Louise, who are struggling with the loss of a lot of personal possessions and and some of the implications that come with that, we just pray that you would strengthen them, that you would provide for them in real tangible ways that they might see your goodness even in the midst of crisis. God, you are good even when the world is broken around us. Help us to see that. Help us to know that. Pray for those this morning who are unable to be here, those who are away traveling, those who are home not feeling well, You know what each one needs, and so we lift them up to you this morning. Would you heal them if they are unwell? Would you grant them traveling mercies if they're traveling? Would they know that they are cared for and loved by you first and foremost, but by this church family as well? God, as we give of our tithes and our offerings to you, would you remind us that everything that we have is not because of us, but it's because of you. Sometimes we may think that we worked hard for what we have, 
but help us to remember that it's only by your grace that you give. And that what you give us, you give us with purpose and intent that we might steward those things well, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. So as we give to you, as we give to your church, God, we pray for wisdom for those in leadership positions to determine how to use and allocate those funds. That our goal would always be the proclamation of Jesus, that our community would know who Christ is. May you be honored both by the giver now and those who determine how those gifts will be used. Thank you for your wisdom in all of those things. Be with us in these moments as we open scripture. As we talk about prayer more, may we understand it more day by day. Go with us in these moments now. Amen. Well, it, uh, it is good to be back with you this morning uh, in the topic of prayer. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, let me just catch you up with where we have been. Uh, for the month of July, we're just talking about prayer. Um, Martin Luther once wrote that, you, I'm paraphrasing now because I didn't write it, but that you, being a Christian, prayer is an essential part just like breathing is an essential part of living is this should be a daily uh, communion with God that we would bring to him our hurts and our troubles and our praise and our adoration and and just everything. Prayer is an essential part of the Christian life. And and while I think most of us agree with that that statement in theory, the actual practice of praying can become very difficult. Whether it's we don't know exactly what to say or, or maybe we just struggle with even the concept of it. The goal with this series is two things, is one, to look to scripture and help us understand more clearly what prayer is, and secondly, that we would practice prayer together. That it wouldn't only be an individual thing, though that I do hope and pray that as you go home that you learn to implement these principles in your own personal lives, but also that corporately we come together and we pray for one another. I've been quoting from Donald Whitney's book, Praying the Bible, and in this book, probably the most helpful, practical, and it's real short for those of you who don't like to read, uh, really, really helpful practice of, of learning how to read scripture and pray that scripture through in your own heart and your own life. Whitney's uh, kind of thesis in the, in, this, in the book is that we don't pray because when we do pray, we pray the same old things about the same old things. And Whitney's argument is when you pray through Scripture, you're taking the truth, the Word of God, things that have been written that are, that are just from God's Spirit, and that we are declaring those things, reminding ourselves of those things, and asking for those things. It gives us a focal point in our prayer life. And so after we initially looked at that, then we, we had the little acronym uh, ACTS, A-C-T-S, and it's just, it's not... This is not the only way to do it. This is just a, a way to kind of be helpful in our memory is that there's adoration prayer that's really important. There's confession prayer. There's thanksgiving prayer. And there's supplication prayer. Four aspects, so there's many others, to guide us and direct us in prayer. And so last week we looked at adoration. Adoration prayer is simply that which when we read through scripture, we are reminded of who God is and what his character is, that God is gracious, that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is just, that God is holy. One of the things that we talked about the most was how do we do that when life has fallen apart around us, when we're in the midst of grief or suffering and hurt? How do we remind ourselves the truth of who God is? And that's again where praying scripture becomes so important. Because when we don't feel something to be true, we can look to Scripture and remind ourselves that it is true. And in that way, we can preach the gospel to our own hearts so that our emotions catch up with the facts. Because the reality is what we know to be true, we don't often feel. And so as uh, we looked at a few uh, prayers that David makes in the Scripture of how he goes to God reminding himself of who he is and then places his circumstance under that. Or even as we looked at in Psalm 22, a cry out to God with, God, what are you doing? Why have you allowed these things? I feel forsaken by you. And yet I know that you are on the throne. 
And Psalm 22 is this back and forth of real honest expression of, of David's own confusion and his hurt, but also his reminder of what God has said to be true about himself. I think adoration prayer is probably where we always ought to begin. Because when we remind ourselves of who God is, and the truth of what God's word says about him, and about our relationship to him, our own circumstances, maybe develop a more correct biblical perspective. This morning we're looking at something a little different, something that we move from adoration into confession. And I think this is a particularly difficult aspect of prayer for most of us because vulnerability is not something that most of us like to do or comes natural to us. The idea of being vulnerable with others might be scary. We might worry that, that others are going to judge us or, or perhaps even we're just struggling with the guilt of admitting to something that we have done or something that we have said. There's a verse in James that we talked about a few weeks ago, and, and I want to spend just a few minutes here before we move anywhere else. James 5.16 says this, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Within that statement, there's an expectation that within the body of Christ that we will confess one to another our sins. How often do we see that in practice? Now, what I'm not saying here is that we're going to go around the circle and bring everyone up here and you get to unload all your dirty laundry in front of the whole church. That's not the goal. That's not the intent. But I think what the intent should be is recognizing something that we all know to be true, but yet we pretend, so we know it's not true, but we pretend that it is. And that truth is that I'm perfect. Of course I'm not. We know we're not, and yet are we willing to invite people into that relationship with us to show our imperfection and, and ask for prayer and ask for help and ask for accountability in those things. James doesn't give us the option. He says, confess. Do this. One of the reasons why? So that you might be healed. Now, whether, whether that's illness that's happened because of um, specific decisions that people have made or, or unhealth within the church. There's, there's many implications that could be there in James, but notice what he said is, confess your sins one to another so that you might find healing. And perhaps you've experienced this in, in your marriage or with your children, perhaps with a friend. When you've had something in your heart that you know needs to be dealt with and you go to that person and you confess with them, there's a sense of, while well, there's maybe shame and guilt and, and hurt and, and all kinds of struggle within, that when you share those things, that you're free from that burden of keeping a secret. Secrets can eat us up. And here's the crazy part about it is, are there any secrets from God? God already knows everything going on in our hearts, so why not? confess, admit, and wrestle through that with God. Now here's an implication in that James chapter 5 verse is this, is to be a Christian means that you are part of a family that we call what? The church. This is not confess your sins to one trusted person. This is confess your sins one to another so that we might find healing. Do you trust your church family that they have the best intentions for your spiritual growth and for the maturity of you as you move forward? Or do we secretly look around and going, well, they're just out to get me. They're just out to show that, that I have hurt and pain in my life. I think it's very hard to confess things one to another. Even when we realize that Scripture, this is, this is a command to us, then, and, and so we respond appropriately, and we get a, a small accountability group together or a Bible study together. Uh, what I've found is this, is that we come together and that we share that we're struggling in a certain area. We need prayer for something with those people that we can trust. But then the question, I have two questions with that is, one, when somebody says that to you, do you commit them to prayer? 
Or do you pray for them in that one moment and walk away and never think about it again? Do we commit each other in prayer? When somebody shares, I'm struggling in this, do we constantly bring them before the throne of grace, interceding on their behalf, taking their concerns and their hurts to Jesus? I think we're really good at praying initially and forgetting later on. Another thing as we think about this in the context of community is that do we confess our sins one to another that we might be healed so that our prayers become more powerful? Often when we, when we share our struggles and our hurts, uh, we have good intent, but it stops there. And so I want to tell you just a little story of what happened to me a, couple, a, a year ago at seminary. A bunch of us were sitting around having a conversation, and, and somebody was sharing that they had recently been part of a Bible study of young mums. And these young mums had gathered together, and, and one woman opened up her heart to the group and, and shared that what she was really struggling with was after a very stressful day with the kids that she was going to the bottle of wine in the evening before going to Christ. And she knew that was wrong and needed help. The problem with what occurred after that conversation, according to my friend, was that they all sat around and they all basically said, either we've been there or we are there in that moment too. And then it stopped. There was no plan of how are we going to hold each other accountable? How are we going to run after Jesus instead of alcohol in this moment? There was this sense that I feel better because I got something off my chest, but I only did the first part of the verse. I didn't do the second part so that my prayers become powerful as I become obedient to what God has called me to do. I think there's one pretty predominant reason that this happens. We don't, let me say this personally, because I don't want to speak for you. Often, I don't approach somebody when I know something needs to be dealt with, because my first thought is I have my own sin in my own heart. And who am I to tell them that they need to get right in this certain area? Well, there's some wisdom to that, is I need to expose my heart to God. I need to make sure that I'm living in repentance and that I'm confessing to Christ. But do I call someone to accountability because I have it figured out or because God has called me to hold them to that standard? In a few weeks, we're going to have a membership Sunday, and there's a few folks that are joining us into membership here, and we take that very seriously as a sense that we are a church family that exists to spur one another on to love and good works, as the writer to the Hebrews says. That when I see a brother or sister not following with what they have said they want to, it is my job as their brother in Christ to come alongside them, not out of condemnation or judgment, but out of encouragement to say, here's what you've called yourself. You've said you want to be a follower of Jesus, and in this moment you're not following Jesus. Come back to him. I don't say that because, oh, I'm perfect. I don't say that because, oh, I've got it all figured out, or I don't struggle in that area. I remember when I was in youth ministry, one of the challenges that parents had a lot was they would say, well, I don't know how to talk with my kids about drugs and alcohol because I use drugs and alcohol a lot, and so what right do I have to say to them? The question is always, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what has God called you to do. Just because you've made mistakes in the past doesn't lessen what God has called us to as a church family. And so there's two things in that. One is I think we're afraid to call someone on their sin because we have our own and I don't want to end up in that fight and that awkward relationship. But the other thing is when somebody calls us on our sin, do we have the spiritual maturity to not fight back but to evaluate our own hearts and to say, is there truth in what was just said? Do I need to wrestle through that? If somebody tells me, Greg, you have an anger problem and I yell at them, all I'm doing is proving to them that they're right. Or am I willing to go, God, there's an issue in my heart that needs exposure. That people see and that are calling me to, what will I do with that? I realize this is a lot of preamble before we get to where we're going. But what I'm trying to get us to see is that confession is something that I think doesn't happen very often amongst hardly any of us. And yet it's a scriptural command to us, and I think one of the reasons we don't do it is because we're afraid because we don't know what it looks like. 
And so we're going to flip to 2 Samuel, and you can go to chapter 11, and uh, chapter 12, pardon me. I'm going to read something from chapter 11, and then I'm going to give you the context of leading into chapter 12 and what we're going to see. 2 Samuel 11 deals with King David. And David is someone that the scriptures talk about as a man after God's own heart. And, and he's constantly calling the people into relationship with God. Back to the covenantal relationship that God has called him to. Back to obedience. And yet, David was just like us and struggled. And had his own sins. And one of the really big challenges that we have here is David's worst moment in his whole life is written here in Scripture for us to see for all of time until eternity. But what we're going to look at is both the prophet Nathan and his willingness to be obedient to what God calls him to do, and then also David's response to that. So 2 Samuel, uh, first I'm going to read chapter 11, verse 1, to give you some context. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Seems like just a normal, simple little verse, just explaining what's happening. But if you wrestle through the context of that, if you, if you dig deeper into it, what you realize is twice the author makes this statement, is David is supposed to be where? With his army. But he's back at the palace. In fact, it says he sent Joab and his servants with him. And then what does it say? And all Israel. Basically what the writer's saying is David sent everybody except he who was supposed to go. Now delegation is good when, when you're in leadership positions, but not at the expense of doing what God has called you to do. This was David's response. And, and he says, but David remained at Jerusalem. David was supposed to go, but stayed home. That might seem like such an insignificant detail. But as the story goes on, we see that David goes up to his roof, and he walks around, and he sees this woman, Bathsheba, bathing in, in a vulnerable state, and, and rather than humbling himself before God and confessing and dealing with what, what lust is in his own heart, he lets that lust give way to sin. And he calls for someone in his palace to go and to bring her to him and and there he has an affair. David did not treat Bathsheba the way that a king was to treat his those he was supposed to care for. He did not remain loyal to his own wife. He did not remain loyal to Bathsheba's husband and we're going to get into that in a moment. But most importantly, he did not remain loyal to God. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And, and David realizes it's clear his sin is going to be found out. But again, he's got opportunity to confess. But instead of confessing, he says, man, how can I hide this? Now, again, if we're being harsh of David, we're probably not being very honest with our own hearts. How often do we, is our default setting, hide sin and not deal with? And so David hatches a plan of what should be Bathsheba's husband is off fighting the battle. And so David finds out, oh, her husband is Uriah, and Uriah is actually one of David's mighty men, and that's a story for another time, but basically this is, is he was one of David's most trusted soldiers. And so he calls for Uriah to be brought home from the battle as a report Tell me what's going on and, and, and go home and spend some time with your, with your wife. And, and he's thinking, okay, if I, if I manipulate this well, then no one will know what I did and all will be good. But in a cruel twist of fate, what we have is that Uriah showed far more integrity than David had. And he says, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go and enjoy the comforts of home when my men are away fighting. Notice those words. That's exactly what David well, first of all, he should have been there in the first place. He should have had the same thought. And so he goes, okay, well, we've got to figure something out. So, so he gets Uriah drunk 
in hopes that, okay, once his judgment gets impaired, then he'll go home. And so he sends him away as he's drunk. And, and then what we read is that Uriah just sleeps kind of outside the palace on the floor. Again, even in his drunken state, shows more integrity than David had. David realizes there's nothing I can do to make this work. So, so I'll make a new plan. And, and so he writes a letter uh, for Uriah to take to the general, which is essentially his death, death sentence. And he takes this letter, and in the letter, it tells the commander, Joab, it says, take Uriah and put him where the fighting is the worst, and then retreat and leave him there to die. Now, first of all, What's Joab going to think about that command? David is not hiding anything that he thinks he is. Uriah dies the way that David has commanded it to be. And now notice what he does. He takes Bathsheba home to be his wife to go, well, because your husband died, I'm going to bring you into, into the palace to protect and to care for you. Not only has he been lying and treating people horribly and trying to cover up sin, now he's trying to do it in a way that elevates himself as the good guy, not only hides the fact that he's the bad guy. Of course, here's the thing. God knows all of this. God knows what's happening in David's heart. So God brings the prophet Nathan to him. To confront him on this. Now here's the thing, right? Back to what I said earlier is we don't want to confront people about their sin because we have our own. Imagine if Nathan said to God, man, I'm not, like, this is the king. He could just throw me in jail. He could just kill me. He could do anything. Who am I that I should approach the king to tell him about his sin? And here's the thing. Who are you that you should do that? Nobody. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about what he has called. It's about the standard that he has set. And if you're not going to call someone to the standard that God has set, then who will? That doesn't mean that you're saying, I'm perfect, you join me in this way. It's simply that I recognize, I see what's happening here, and this needs to change. And then we're inviting others to do that same thing to us. And So this is what we read in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of the man's, sorry, one of his own flock or herd to prepare them for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Real quick reminder: What was David's occupation before king? Right, God knows how to get a hold of David here. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Imagine the courage of Nathan to step out and do what he knew was right, what God had told him to do. Notice, as you read through this section, what you don't see is that Nathan's goal is shame and ridicule upon David. His goal is not that everybody finds out all the details of what happened so that David could, could lose his authority. His goal wasn't to supplant him and to bring a new king into power. Nathan's goal was simply this, that David would repent, turn to God, and lead his people well. That should be the same motivation of you and I. When we see a brother or sister not living the way that they have said that they are going to, when they are not following after the will of God, it is our responsibility to go to them not for any other motive except for that they would be restored to relationship with Jesus and they would become more mature in their faith. 
That's the goal. And so I do think we need to examine our own hearts. I think it's easier to go, there's a rule breaker. Let's show that they broke the rules so that there's consequences. Why is that my job? God's going to do what God's going to do in that. What my job is, is to call them to repentance so that they would grow in their faith. And and Nathan does that. In verse 13, David confesses and he says that he has sinned against the Lord. And we've talked about this, this word repentance. Does anybody remember what it means? It means to turn and walk in the opposite direction. So David recognizes what he's done is wrong. He repents, and the rest of the chapter, he shows that he's going to seek to make it right at least as much as he can to undo the awful thing that he has done. Now, there were consequences. There were immediate consequences. One of those consequences was that that child died. Another one of those consequences was more long-term and that there was great hostility within David's own family for what he had done. Again, like I said, David's worst sin is written there for us to see. And we could easily stand over it with judgment and go, what an awful person. Or we can look at this and go, the man after God's own heart, even he did such a horrible thing. What about my own heart? I need to repent and I need to run after God. I need to turn away from what is wrong. I need to confess those things. And then live in a way that shows my confession to be genuine and not hypothetical only. We as a church are called to come together to confess our sins, to repent, and to run after Jesus together. You and I, we cannot hide our sin and expect to find spiritual maturity. That's a hard sentence to hear, isn't it? promise you it's worse to say we cannot hide our sins and then expect that we're going to grow David's response and you can turn to Psalm 51 one of the more famous passages of scripture this is David's response to that encounter with Nathan and what I want to do this morning is I want to read through these 19 verses, just make a couple of observational uh, comments on this, and then I want to pray this psalm through together. This is something we've been doing at the end of every um, church service in, in July is actually practicing praying through reading Scripture and what it looks like. David's been called for his sin, and here's how he responds. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now I should say really quickly as well. It's not as though, sometimes we think of the Psalms as private writings of people that we've made public is these writings were used in corporate worship in, in Israel. So David is writing this as a response to what, his, what he's done so that everyone might learn of it. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's a pretty amazing chapter. Maybe a rhetorical question first before we begin is this. Is if somebody approached you with an area that you were not living under submission to God and called you to repentance, is this the response that you would make? If I'm real honest, my first thought would probably be to fight back. Point out all their sins. But all that does is show my own immaturity and my own spiritual growth. David starts, have mercy on me, O God. Do we realize just how desperately we need God's mercy in every moment of our day? I think sometimes, especially those of us who have maybe been in church for a long time or or those of us who have grown up in church, it's all become so normal, God's mercy and his grace, that we start to think that we almost expect it and we almost start to believe that we're entitled to it. But the truth is this, there's only one thing according to scripture in Romans that I deserve, and what is that? Death. That's the only thing that my actions have earned myself. And so I cry out to God, God, have mercy on me. Now praise the Lord, through Jesus Christ's death on the cross is my sin is forgiven. But that doesn't mean that I need his mercy any less. In fact, it probably makes me more aware of just how desperately I need it in every situation. But also notice what he says, have mercy on me according to Does it say everything that I have done that's good in the past? Of how mostly I follow after you? No, he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We need to be reminded that the only reason that we have salvation is because of Christ's love for us. Not because of my worthiness. Because I don't have any worthiness. It's because of him and not me. And again, when we pray those things, we set ourselves where we should be, at the foot of the cross, looking up to a holy God who only through his intervention in our lives do we have hope. David says, wash me that I might be clean. Remember, as we've been going through Exodus and through 2023 up until the summer here is that there's this uncleanness that sin sin brings with it. And so David is ritualistically unclean and he needs God's cleansing. Now he talks about this at the end of the psalm and the sacrifices that he's going to make, but he already understands it. And he says, right, it's not in sacrifices that you desire. It's in my heart that you desire. The sacrificial system right from the beginning was not about you, uh, not about the individual offering that sacrifice out of compulsion or guilt or because he should. It was a way to show the severity of his sin, the hurt that he had caused God, and the reminder that innocent blood had to be shed for your sins. God was always after our heart, not just our un. Let me say it this way. God's after an obedience that comes from the motivation of our heart, not simply because we read something or know we should do something. David admits, I know my transgression, my sin, it's ever before me. And then he says this, against you and against you only have I sinned. And at first you might kind of think, hold on, David sinned against all kinds of people here in this situation. Well, here's how commentator C. John Collins writes. He says, Of course in doing wrong, David has hurt others. 
The point here is that God is the ultimate judge for all sin. Thus, harming others is given not less weight, but more. David acknowledges that all sin, regardless of who it is against, ultimately is against God. When you, let's make this real here. When you yell at your wife, when you exacerbate your children, you are sinning against the creator of the universe. Because he has called you to live in a completely different way than your human nature wants. And if we just see it as, oh, I've just hurt this individual, and we don't see that that's hurt my relationship with God, then we have belittled sin to something that is not a big deal when it is a huge deal. In fact, I think that's one of the biggest problems in our Christian churches today is that sin is not viewed as sin is in the Bible. What does Romans say? The wages of sin, I already said it, but it's death. When we start to see sin for what it is and the assault on God's character that it is, we may then start to see the implications of how desperately I need his mercy so that I might be the husband that God has called me to be, so that I might be the father that God has called me to be, whatever your situation is. Whoever God has called you to be, he's called you to be it because of his mercy, not your gifts, not your abilities. David acknowledges the depth of his sin, not the specific sin, but sin in general. When he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, he's saying this is, is in my mother's womb before I was even born, I was, I was sinful. In other words, he's saying this is apart from Christ. There's no hope. Now here's the thing is, we live in a world where it constantly wants to build you up and say, you are good enough. You, you're, you're innocent. You're the things that you do are those, some of them are bad, but, but generally speaking, you're a good person who just does bad things. But what does scripture teach us? That while I was in my mother's womb, I was already sinful and an assault on God's character. That's really bad news, except for the fact that God's offered the free, grace, the free grace of forgiveness in Jesus Christ to you. I say this all the time, but the bad news is way worse than we think it is, but the good news is way better than we think it is. And so David, acknowledging his own heart, acknowledging how wicked it is, asks God to cleanse him, to wash him. Notice verse 8, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Notice what he's doing. God, what you have broken. What does he mean by that? Well, simply this is God has exposed within him his own heart. And God has broken him so that he can rebuild him. That's good news, friends. He says, create in me a clean heart and... You know, we sing this song a lot, and when I told Jordan what we were going to um, be studying here, I said, don't actually sing that song, because I'm going to argue against that song in a moment. But the first bit of the song is good. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That should be our prayer every day. That God would clean us and that give us a new spirit, that new spirit, the Holy Spirit within us, that we would submit to him and that we would run after him. But verse 11, and this is where both I want to explain it now, but also when I pray through the psalm in just a moment, that we recognize the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the blessings that we have on this side of the cross. As David prays, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The reason he prays that is because his predecessor, who was king, Saul, had God's Spirit. And then what happened? God took it from him because Saul was refusing to be obedient to God. And David says, I don't want to become like that. I don't want my heart to become hardened. So don't take your spirit from me. I need it to move forward. Well, praise the Lord, friends, that we, according to the book of Ephesians, have been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. 
is if you've confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has marked you with his seal of the Holy Spirit, and it will never depart you. That is, that is great news that I wish that we could sit down with David and tell him, Here, here's what's coming. Here's what this is going to look like. So we don't pray, God, please don't take your spirit from me. We praise the Lord that he has promised that he won't. But then verse 12, good again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I think this is what confession does, is when we confess our hearts, when we paint everything before God the way it actually is, and we see just how wicked and dirty and unclean we are, the more beautiful salvation becomes, amen? It's not as though Jesus died on the cross because Greg had a few things that need to be dealt with. It's because apart from the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, the only thing I deserve is hell. And he has intervened. And may that never become normal or mundane or just a, a, a blase truth, something that we just go, oh, I know, I'm, I know I'm a Christian, so I know I have salvation, is that we would come before a holy God and go, God, thank you that you have given me salvation, something to which I have never deserved nor could ever earn. And then here's the prayer that I've been praying most lately, and I don't know that I'm doing a very good job of this. Uphold me with a willing spirit. My prayer lately has been that I will desire to run after God, not myself. That I will see the goodness of what he offers, and I will see it in proper perspective, and I will see the things that I want don't hold any weight. Some of your translations will have a little break, a little kind of section. It's, it's called a strophe. And verse 13 starts a new thought, and he says this. After all of this that he's dealt with, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Do you notice what he's doing? After I see my sin and the, the mess that I painted myself in, and yet the goodness and graciousness of your mercy and restoring me to relationship with you, then I will teach transgressors your ways. All sin, well, let me say it this way. Remember how we talked in, in Genesis 50, Joseph says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Is God has a way of taking the most broken thing and using it in redemptive, beautiful purposes. And even when we give in to sin, God goes, I'm going to use this sin for good. That you might proclaim to others the goodness of my mercy. Friends, I think the most effective evangelistic tool that you have at your disposal is your confession. That you did not deserve the mercy and grace of God. That you regularly don't deserve that mercy, and yet God has given it to you. We should be the first people to admit when we're wrong. The first people to admit when we've hurt people. The first to admit that we have fought against Christ and confessed those things. And in doing that, the world will see our response, the humility that we should have. And then we will declare it. Verse 14, notice, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. There's this scripture passage where Jesus kind of says, if, if these children don't cry out, then the rocks are going to cry out. Our response to the truth of the gospel should be such wonder and awe and amazement that it leads to one thing, and that one thing is worship. Praise the Lord for what he has done for you and for me. And then he says, right, it's, it's not... It's not in this begrudging obedience that you have called me to, but it's in a broken spirit and a broken, contrite heart. But notice what he says is when I've dealt with my heart, then you will delight in right sacrifices. David isn't saying, I'm not going to sacrifice. He's saying, I'm going to get right in my heart first so that when I go and offer sacrifices to you, that you are pleased. 
Now again, we on this side of the cross, we don't offer sacrifice because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient once for all for the forgiveness of sin. But we still evaluate our own hearts. And, and so let me say it this way, is, is you shouldn't be walking into church Sunday morning having screamed at your family and gone, we'll deal with this later. You should deal with your heart then. And then even if you don't feel like going to church, even if you don't feel like going to worship, even if you feel so broken and, and confused and hurt that you go, but here, oh, being obedient to the gathering of the saints that I might be taught and encouraged from the word of God, that is what will change my heart. May we not be about legalistic obedience for the sake of trying to earn something that we can never earn. May we be about humility where we confess, where we repent, and where we offer a heart of worship to God. Psalm 51 is what confession looks like. And so my challenge to you is beyond just your spouse or your kids, but, but certainly to them too, or your friends or your housemates or whatever it is. Find a group of people that you can study scripture with, but that you don't just study scripture with. You call each other to practice what we have been studying. And when you are struggling going, man, I'm, I'm not able to do this or I'm struggling with this, that that group would commit you to prayer, not just in that moment, but that they would remember to pray for you regularly, that they would be calling you to a higher standard to follow after Jesus Christ. Not because your friends are perfect and have it figured out, but because you're all on that same journey together and together as we fight, we'll find victory. May we not ignore confession when we pray. May we confess all of our heart's brokenness before God, knowing that A, he already knows about it anyway, but B, he has offered forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And he wants to be in walking relationship with us. So as we pray through this psalm together, I'm going to stop at verse 4. And I'm going to leave it quiet for a moment when we pray about against you and you only have I sinned. And I just want you to confess in your own heart, quietly to God, the things that you know shouldn't be there and ask him to help you in that. but with the intent that you would not simply do that now quietly with you and God, but that you would look for people that you can confess to, that they would call you to an accountability, that you would submit yourselves under them, ultimately under the Lordship of Christ. Let's pray through this together. God, we acknowledge right here and right now that we desperately are in need of your mercy. That every day, that every, probably every moment of every day, every decision that I make, that I need your mercy because I want to run one way and it is not after you. My sin nature is fighting. And so would you grant me mercy to follow after you? Not because of anything that I am capable of or can do, but because in your steadfast love. God, thank you that through the blood of Jesus that, that our sin has been made clean and that we can stand before you righteous, not based on what we have done, but on what Christ has done. God, as we evaluate our own hearts, we know the sin that is in there. And we want to admit that any and all sin is ultimately sin against you. So God, would you expose our hearts to us that we might see those things and in this moment of silence together now, may we confess the things in our heart that we need to give to you.
God, for these things that we've laid at the cross. First, we are so thankful that Jesus, that his sacrifice was sufficient to forgive those sins. But may we recognize those things in our hearts that we have confessed that shouldn't be there and may we run after you. May we see ourselves the way that we should see ourselves, recognizing how sinful our heart is, that there is nothing good in us apart from you. May we not buy into the cultural lies that that we are inherently good, but may we see that only one is good and that is you. May we see the tremendous sacrifice of Jesus is the only thing that forgives us of our sins. And so God, clean us. Clean us that we might be white as snow. God, create in each one of us a clean heart. One that wants to run after you and what is true and what is right and what is good. Renew within us a spirit, a desire to run after the the good and not the bad. God, thank you that that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And that as it says in Ephesians, that it is a guarantee, it is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That you are at work within us. Thank you. Would you restore to us the joy of your salvation? God, may we be blown away by the fact that you have called us into your family. That not only have you forgiven us of our sins, but you have called us for purpose that we might declare Christ and make him known. Would we teach others your ways, when, when we have fallen in sin, may we confess those things, may we not hide those things, and may we show your mercy and your goodness, even in the midst of our heart, would we talk about those things so that other people see your grace and your mercy. When we think about these things, when we consider your goodness, may we cry out in praise. May we sing songs of worship. May we fall on our knees, overwhelmed by your goodness. May we not be people who legalistically try and obey ritual for some sense of feeling good about ourselves or thinking that we can earn your mercy. May we get our hearts right first And then may we offer you of the gifts that you have given us. God, would you help us to be people that want to do what is right and what is good. Not that we would receive the credit, but that you would receive the honor and the glory. Help us not be afraid of confession, Lord. May we have the courage to approach our brothers and sisters and help them in their spiritual walk. And may we have the grace and the humility to respond when others call us. We as a church, not not just Banff Park Church, but we as the global church, we want you to receive honor and glory from us. And so may we run after you together, all united in one purpose. God, for these things that we pray, we know that you have heard us because we know they're your words. And so you would, would you imprint these things on our hearts and our minds as we go from here? Thank you that we can confess and thank you that through Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross that we can have forgiveness of sins. We praise you for that. Would you go with us in these days? Help us to be a people that are vulnerable and are humble and willing to share 
with others even when we are broken individuals. God, we love you. Be with us now. Amen. Thank you for joining us and look forward to looking at Thanksgiving prayer next week. If, if you're visiting, there's just a reminder, there's snacks on the other side of here. All free food is good food, especially when it costs as much in Banff. So, and two b- different people brought snacks, so that's a win for everyone. So we hope that you have a wonderful time. If you'd like to come chat with me, I'll be at the front for a, for a moment, and we just hope to see you again soon. Bye-bye.